Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Okay, we're going to start digging in a little bit more now. Now, we're going to try to get under the skin, then, of the church. We want to step back in time. I've given you a massive macro view picture of the church for the first sort of five, six hundred years or so. I want to now try to step inside the skin of the average church and step back to, say, the second century to start with. But what I'm going to say is going to apply to second, third centuries particularly. And see, what are the kind of issues that they're facing? What's going on? And a key issue for all of them is keeping the faith. Keeping the apostolic faith. And the question is, are they managing to do that or not? They want to do it. Are they actually doing it or not? So, for example, in the second century, from all the evidence we have, basically, if you're a second century believer, you're a pre-millennialist. Now, what do you do with that? You don't need to worry. It's a particular view of the end times. You don't need to worry about the details. Because it's second century, do you say, well, that's so close to the Bible, that must then be the more natural reading of Scripture? Because the guys who are the next generation of the apostles read it that way. Or not? How How do you interpret that sort of evidence? Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give you another example. Bishops. This is um, Ignatius. He was Bishop of Antioch uh, in Syria. Um, We know basically nothing about him until he was martyred in the year 110. Uh, You can tell how he was martyred by these rather lifelike lions. Um, Now, he is Bishop of Antioch. And he has a very very high view of bishops. Very high. So, he thinks and argues the church, and he's martyred in 110, this is early, really early stuff. He says the church finds its unity through the bishop. Not through the spirit, through the bishop. And he says, you must not do anything without the bishop and the presbyters as a church. In fact, he says, it is not permissible either to baptize or to hold a love feast without the bishop present. In fact, um, that's written in a letter to the Magnesians, which when you read it in the Greek, reads a little alarmingly. It literally reads, um, it's translated as, you must not not baptize or hold a love feast without the bishop. But in Greek, that's literally, you must not baptize or make love without the bishop present. So when you read it, it's um, a slightly strange church. But he reads the love feast. So he's saying, basically, you must have the bishop present for anything significant. um, Because... The bishop represents Christ to the church. So the bishop is not present, it's not truly being the church. Now that's a high view of bishops. And it's early. So what do you do with that? Well, I'm going to give you the two extreme opposite ends of the spectrum of how to deal with that. 
And I just tell you now, you're probably not going to be at either opposite extreme, I guess. One end of the spectrum looks at that and goes, well, there you go. It proves that episcopacy evolves very, very naturally because it evolves so quickly out of the apostolic faith, right? Always the next generation they have this high view of bishops. So that must be the orthodox view. And that's the Catholic interpretation and generally the orthodox, Eastern Orthodox interpretation, right? So there's a continuity. You have bishops very quickly. Bishops are apostolic. And um, at the other end of the spectrum, you, you have this view. I don't think this will be you either. Don't read yourself into this view too quickly. The other end of the spectrum is, no, no, no. Things have gone wrong very quickly. That's, this is a corruption we're seeing very quickly. Because, here's where you may start disagreeing. Because, in the New Testament, this is an academic argument doing the rounds at the moment, In the New Testament, the New Testament knows nothing of eldership. Nothing. In the New Testament, with the apostolic letters, they speak of a charismatic, democratic community, a radical congregationalism. There are no elders. Paul never writes about elders. He wouldn't because in the earliest apostolic generation, it was absolutely democratic. So bishops are a corruption. Now, so far you're going, hmm, hang on, what you're saying is absolute rubbish. What about 1, 2 Timothy and Titus? The argument is that proves they're not from Paul. Right? Because in the year 50, we're radical congregationalists. There's no eldership. In the year 110, you've got bishops. So somewhere you've got this rise of interest in church authority structures. So if you're interested in in elders who have authority, you're probably talking about 80 AD. But it can't be Paul writing it. Understand the argument? That was one of the first arguments against the Pauline authorship of 1, 2, Timothy and Titus. Now, do you understand two positions? One saying there's absolute continuity... It's easy. One saying, no, there's a very fast corruption. And you've got this radical difference. Now, that radical difference, do you, do you see, I, I'm guessing you're not quite at either spectrum, either end. Now, that, that radical reading, to say there's a real change from the apostolic generation to later, a real massive sea change, is particularly represented by... Um, there we are. Um, guys like this, he's a guy called Bart Ehrman. Um, E-H-R-M-A-N, Bart Ehrman. And at the heart of Bart Ehrman's project today um, is he's saying what you've got, early Christianity is radically diverse, incredibly diverse. See, basically, as an early Christian, you can believe pretty much anything you want on who Jesus is, how many gods there are. And he'll say, look, if you're an early Christian, some early Christians believe there's one God, some early Christians believe there are three gods, 
some early Christians believe there are 330 gods. And you're thinking, I beg your pardon. What he's doing is he's lumping together all sorts of people who were saying such things and saying that was just generally accepted what it was like in Christianity. But what happened was this. It was all very cool and hippie and you could just you know, believe what you want, man. And then one group, one faction in Rome just got more and more powerful. And they basically stomped on everyone else and laid down the official reading. And that became orthodoxy. It's no more valid than any other form of early Christianity, but that became. And they just rewrote history to go, we're the proper version. Now, that argument is just worth your knowing because it resurfaces in things like Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, that you had this sort of um, nice, um, diverse early Christianity which the church has hushed up. It's hushed up these now heterodox views and it's now peddling its own authoritarian line. Right, so you're hearing this is starting to hit the streets, this kind of stuff. Do you see the issue? Keeping the faith becomes important. Are they keeping the faith or are they not? They're trying to, but they're doing it. Let's, let's go on. Do you see the issue? Keeping the faith is the issue. Let's get on to false teaching. Now, um, let's take you back to Ignatius, because Ignatius sums things up well. He's got two big, cons- two big pastoral concerns on his mind. Um, in, uh, false teaching is at the heart of it. And he believes there are basically two types of false teacher in his day. Both, here's what unites them, both types of false teacher deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Hear one John echoing in your mind. Right? Those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Right? One John. And he's saying that very much characterizes false teaching and it takes two forms. The first form are the docetics. The docetics. Do you want me to spell any of this out? D-O-C-E-T-I-C-S, the docetics. Um, The docetics, um, it comes from the Greek word dokio, D-O-K-E-O, which means to appear or to seem. Because they're saying, this is very different to how things are today. Today people say Jesus was a man but not God. They were saying the opposite. They were saying, sure, Jesus was divine in some sense, but he wasn't truly human. He just appeared to be human because God couldn't be human. The Spirit can't do that. And so they were saying he appeared to be human, so, but he wasn't actually weak or hungry. Um, he didn't leave footprints. He didn't really eat and drink. He would drop his food down his shirt and that kind of stuff. You know, so there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. Um, now, possibly the most notorious docetic teacher was a guy called Marcion. Um, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Now, Marcion be- believed basically there are two gods. You have the evil creator god of the Old Testament. Now, in creating physical stuff, you know he's evil, because we know that physical is bad, right? 
Well, I mean, look at your body. It just decays over time, doesn't it? So the physical is rubbish. You know that. But spiritual can't decay. So spiritual, hmm. Physical, ugh. You know, if you're still 20 and you think physical is cool, grow up and you'll realise it rots. You know. um, so physical, bad. So whoever created that is bad. So the creator God, who's the God of the Old Testament, bad. God of the New Testament, who will save us from all that, rip us out of our bodies. He's good. Thank you for rescuing us from our bodies and whisking us off to heaven. And so Jesus, representing in some sense the God of the New Testament, cannot have had a body having something to do with the evil God of the Old Testament. See? And also, you're going to want nothing to do with the Old Testament, are you? Because that's the wrong God. So our scriptures basically mean bits of the New Testament that don't refer to the Old. And that's not a lot. Right? That's Marcion's scriptures. Do you see where he's going? It's this split between the physical and the spiritual, between the God of the Old Testament ugh, and the God of the New Testament. In stark opposition, Ignatius would speak of the blood of God. We love to use that sort of striking language, which is in Acts. Because he's saying, well, if the Son of God did not assume a real body to die for my sin then my sin is not truly dealt with. Yeah? If he's not truly assumed our humanity, he's not truly healed, saved our humanity. He's not a real saviour if he doesn't assume a real body. Right? One of the phrases that becomes important later um, in the church, a guy called Gregory Nazianzen says, what he did not assume, he did not heal. If there's something, if there's some aspect of humanity that Christ didn't take, well, that he can't save. So he comes to humanity to save humanity. So he takes a body that he might save and rescue our bodies. Yeah? If he didn't assume humanity, humanity isn't healed or saved. The other thing for Ignatius is Ignatius wanted to be martyred. A lot of people think he's a bit of a whack job for this today. And they think he's lost it because he sounds in his letters very keen to be martyred. Very keen to be martyred. And so people go, y- you are a bit potty here. But the eagerness actually is theologically driven. He's saying, I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ. So we actually... He's taken in Antioch and he's surrounded by soldiers and hustled to Rome. On the way, he writes to the church in Rome saying, please don't do anything to stop my martyrdom. Don't speak to any of the officials saying, please, I want to be martyred. And if I say, please help on the day, don't listen. Let me get martyred because I want to be like Christ. Okay. Now, for him, it becomes very important, and poignantly so, if Christ did not truly suffer, he wasn't copying Christ. There was no need to be martyred. And so the hope of the martyrs, the comfort of the martyrs, was totally stripped away if you say that Jesus wasn't truly human. Right? Let me just read you something Ignatius wrote. He said... 
If Christ were not human, then I die for no reason. But, now get this, in, in, in the face of the charges that people didn't believe in a fully human, fully divine Jesus early on, he's martyred in 110 and he writes this, just a few weeks before he's martyred. He says, there is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering and then beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's said quite a lot, hasn't it? So the idea that it's only, it's only settled that Jesus is fully God and fully man it's sometime in that, I don't know, 4th century or something. That kind of absolute bunkum. This guy's martyred in 110. He's an influential teacher. Now, related to this docetic problem is, um, is a group called the Gnostics. It starts with a G, just to throw you off. And if you've heard of the Gnostics, they're probably the sort you kind of go, I've heard of them, and I've heard they're a bit freaky, but I've never quite got my head around them. That's okay, no one has. Um, I've done my PhD on this stuff, and it's impossible to get your head around. Um, it's kind of the point. Basically, the Gnostics, um, there was no one Gnostic belief. They were basically a bunch of weird little sects spread out all over the shop. They believed all sorts of different things. What Bart Ehrman is doing is trying to say, that's a valid part of Christianity. The Christian church widely opposed them. And some of the finest theologians of the um, second century particularly were dedicating their lives, people like Irenaeus um, in Gaul, were dedicating their ministries to showing why Gnosticism is the worst of all heresies. Now, let me introduce you to the sort of thing the Gnostics would say. And they're like these docetics. Um, let me introduce you to one extreme Gnostic sect called the Cainites. The Cainites. They're named after Cain. Okay? Now, the Cainites, they basically thought, let's emulate all the baddies of the Old Testament. So Cain, by refusing to do the will of the God of the Old Testament, well done. So all the faithless of the Old Testament are the heroes. Yeah? Because the God of the Old Testament is basically the devil. Right? So, do you see, that, that's, that's an extreme form. They, so, they're saying everything Old Testament, physical, to do with that God, reject it. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear more about the Gnostics? I wasn't going to spend much time on the Gnostics. Shall I say a little bit more about them? Or? A little bit more, okay. Um, okay, the Gnostics, what a weird lot they were. Um, okay, th- th- this is how, people often say Gnosticism is dualism that you've got the physical and the spiritual. It's not quite like that, actually. Um, They weren't quite like that. They were actually monists, which means this. Basically, it's like... um, Okay, imagine this room is the totality of reality. Okay? And so we're all little sort of angelic beings. Well, mighty angelic. Let's call ourselves mighty angelic beings. We're great and powerful. And this is the spiritual realm. We're all spirits here. Okay? Then someone is naughty in this room. There's nothing outside this room, by the way. Someone is naughty, and we kick you out for being naughty. 
Now, you now exist outside the room, right? So something now exists outside the room. You. Naughtiness. Yeah? And that thing that's outside becomes the origin of the physical universe. Does that make sense? So, what you've got is you have spiritual realm. Mm, Nice. Something naughty happens and it's kicked out and that becomes the origin of creation. So, in Genesis you have creation then fall. Gnosticism you have fall. Creation is the result of the fall. Got it? So that the physical is bad. But the great news is, is that the spiritual realm, sometimes it's compared to being like a dog that vomits out the physical, but then will slurp it all back up. And everything, so everything physical will be removed. And, and then basically everything physical, the universe, will just be like a, an embarrassing memory in the mind of the spiritual realm. All, it'll all be over. We'll all be just spiritual again. Make sense? But let me just... Um, this, this becomes important. Sorry, I'm really waffling now. I'm getting off course. But um, I'll talk about the Gnostics today. Um, with that mindset, imagine you're a Gnostic now. With that mindset, come and read Genesis 2. What happens? Okay, Genesis 2. So Genesis 2, um, how does it start? You have Adam alone. Just one. Mm, One. Good. Right? Like spiritual realm alone. Good. And then Eve comes out of Adam. Right? So it's like as the physical came out of the spiritual, Eve gets excreted out of Adam. And so femininity, woman, is as evil a thing as the physical. It's evil. Right? So, for example, you have something like the Gospel of Thomas, which ends, Simon Peter says to Jesus, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of eternal life. Jesus replies, no, she may become a man, for men are worthy of eternal life. And all the women go, oh, Jesus. You're so good. But you see, that is... um, Do you see, that is an understanding that flows straight out of their worldview. Does it make sense? Yeah? Physical comes out of the spiritual, so woman comes out of man. And so, now come back to reading something like Dan Brown. Dan Brown is saying that in the lovely old Gnostics, they're sort of proto-feminists. They're so good. Yeah? Whereas the nasty old authoritarian church is this male-led stomping down on women authoritarianism. It's, a, it's such a distortion. The Gnostics, well, for women at least, salvation meant gender bending. You could not be a woman and be saved. To be a woman is an evil thing. Whereas for the early church, orthodox theologians, they're saying, no, the existence of Man and woman is good. In that it tells you about, well, that's being in the image of God. The difference between the sexes, relationship, marriage, those are good things that tell you about the very heart of the gospel. 
Anyone want to pick up on that? Because that's just, the Gnostics are not these lovely, lovely women affirming peaceful guys at all. Yeah. Um, so that's the Docetics, Gnostics, a little bit on them. The other sort of false teacher that um, Ignatius was particularly um, wary of and wanted to warn people against, was big for the day, was the Judaizer, who also denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. So similar problem, but it takes a different form. And this was big for a Christianity that's only just starting to be recognized as an independent thing to Judaism. How do Christians relate to Jews? How do they relate to the Old Testament we've already seen as a problem? Um, sorry, just before I got on to that, that, that hit the resurrection issue, everything I was talking about with the body. So the Gnostics were going, absolutely no, no bodily resurrection. But that wasn't where um, mainline Christianity was at at all. So you were, sorry, um, let me just backpedal to that. Um, so you were having a lot of people who were saying, yes, our hope is... Um, just have a spiritual future. But there was a guy called Justin Martyr, um, who is a superb second century theologian, who, who at one point he's dialoguing with a philosopher and he says, there are some who say that Christians when they die will go to heaven. Do not believe that they are Christian. Very strong thing to say. What he means is, not that when we die we won't go to heaven, but if you think heaven as in somewhere else other than a renewed earth, is our ultimate hope. That's not a Christian view. Christian view is that Christ will resurrect us to live a resurrected life in resurrected bodies on a resurrected, renewed earth. That's the Christian view, says Justin Martyr. Yeah. So there were differences of opinion, but he's saying, in fact, that's the Christian view. So the Judaizers then. Um, how to read the Old Testament. It became this issue that is Christianity this odd offshoot? You have Judaism lies in continuity with the Old Testament. Christianity somehow is this odd sprout off. Is that what's going on? And so what should we do with things like circumcision and the Mosaic law? Are, Are we bound by them? And Ignatius wanted to be very clear that that is not how it is at all. That Christians live in absolute continuity. They have the same faith as the believers of the Old Testament. That it is Judaism after the incarnation that is the shoot-off. In having rejected Jesus as the Lord, you're no longer worshipping the Lord of Israel for all your claims. Right? So, the faithful of the Old Testament worship the Lord of Israel. Jesus comes saying, I am he. I am the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. I am the Lord of Israel. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not a true believer. For all that you say, I worship the Lord. So, Ignatius wanted to say the Old Testament believers were Christians. They had faith in the same person we have faith in, in Christ. Um, And you see, the Jewish scriptures existed to proclaim him, this person, who he was and what he would come to do. 
And if the Hebrew scriptures were not inherently Christian, then Judaism, not Christianity, is true. Right? Now this got picked up um, by another important letter, a um, letter of Barnabas, written by Paul's companion, apparently. And um, in the letter of Barnabas, Barnabas argues that from the very beginning, from Genesis, he means, the faithful were always Christian, trusting in the same person we trust in, the same Lord who would become incarnate. And so, like Ignatius, Barnabas wrote his letter to argue, no, the Old Testament books were written as Christian books to proclaim this person, to teach the Christian gospel. And it's not that then, the Old Testament was basically a Jewish thing and we're reading meaning back in. Right, so we can see it's Christian, but it wasn't actually inherently Christian. Well, if that's true, Judaism wins, right? It'd be a bit like um, Muslims saying, oh yeah, the New Testament, it's not within itself obvious that it's predicting Muhammad. But with the coming of Muhammad, you can kind of see that, right? Every Christian goes, what? What sort of argument's that? Same with Judaism. And so Barnabas and Ignatius, others like them, Justin Martyr did it at length as well, wanted to say, no, the Old Testament is not talking, Marcion, about a different God. About the same God and the same gospel. That true understanding of Moses should lead you to faith in Christ. Yeah? This is John 5, isn't it? Moses wrote of me, says Jesus. So, you get um, a lot of time spent on reading the Old Testament, trying to show from just within the Old Testament, without even having to refer to the New Testament, just on its own terms, let me prove that the Old Testament is Christian. So you have people looking at um, the Passover and how that's uh, the sacrifices of the law, how they're meant to proclaim the truths of the gospel. Right? It's not that we're reading those things in. They're meant to do that. Or one, one thing that's really popular was um, looking at the name Joshua. Yeah, but Joshua in Hebrew is the Hebrew form of Greek Jesus, right? And Joshua wasn't his original name, was that? Do you remember what his original name was? He was renamed Joshua. Hoshea. And he's renamed in Numbers. Now, when someone's renamed, that's significant. So, like, when Abraham is renamed, we take that seriously. When Hoshea is renamed Joshua, we should take that seriously. And Hoshea, Jesus, the man who leads the people into the promised land, the fact that his name is Jesus tells you something important, and Hebrews 4 picks that up. Joshua, that Jesus didn't give rest. This Jesus does give true rest. So I don't want to pick up on that because it's an absolutely critical issue for the church of the time that the survival of Christianity in the second century in particular was about the battle for the ownership of the scriptures. Were the Old Testament scriptures Christian or really Jewish? 
Okay, let me pick up on an issue that almost came up. So we looked at some false teaching. Let me come to, I'm going to call it bad teaching. What's the difference? Well, I suppose it's tone and intensity. There was a lot of bad teaching that started to creep in. It wasn't outrightly denying Christian essentials, but the flavour could be, well, particularly legalistic. And you do get legalism really creeping in the second century. And I think what you get to see probably more than anything is in the second century you see in what writings we have remaining quite often an extraordinarily poignant absence of language about grace and a lot of very legalistic sounding teaching. And Sorry, a lot of legalistic sounding teaching. So I think what you see in the second century, and I don't want to go with Bart Ehrman and talk about a radical discontinuity, but I do think there's a creep that happens in quite a widespread way, and I'm going to show you it in a bit, that proves Paul's point in Galatians 1. Remember Galatians 1, Paul says, I'm astonished at how quickly you are leaving the gospel of Christ to another gospel which is not truly a gospel. Right, And I think you see exactly that. So if it could happen in Galatians, within the Apostle Paul's lifetime, you see it happen in the wider church. Not, not everywhere, but you do see it in some places. So let me just give you some examples of turning from the gospel of grace. What I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you to one letter, one writing called The Shepherd of Hermas. Now the reason I'm telling you about this one is The Shepherd of Hermas was wildly popular in its day, in the second century. Wildly popular. Now, what does popularity tell you? Because Rob Bell is wildly popular. (laughs) Joel Osteen is wildly popular. But they don't tell you what every Christian thinks today, do they? But they do tell you what a lot of people think. And so, Shadow of Hermas is not telling you what everyone thought at the time. It's just not. But it is telling you what a lot of people thought, because this was so popular as a book. You understand that? Yeah. So, Shepherd of Hermas, basically, um, is a series of visions um, by a guy called Hermas. Um, and these visions, are, well, some of them are interpreted to him by an angel who takes the form of a shepherd, hence the Shepherd of Hermas. All right? Don't ever try to read it. It was, well, unless you really, really can't sleep. It's better than Horlicks. It's so dull to read. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about it, because it will tell you where the church was at. So, with these series of visions, the most important vision is Hermas sees this tower built on water. What does that mean? And the angel tells him, the shepherd tells him, that... Um, Actually, he's not a shepherd in that, in that vision. The, the angel tells him that this tower built on water represents the church built on baptism. Right? So you see, we've got a very, very strong doctrine of baptism here. Baptism is very important. So, and it tells you a lot about the big concern of the day, which we've touched on already. Can you be forgiven once you've been baptised? Is there any more forgiveness to be had? So you're baptised, washed clean, 
Can you be forgiven if you sin after that? Here's the shepherd of Hermes answer. Yes, once. For there is only one repentance for God's servants, I quote. Ouch! Get baptised and you're allowed one night on the tiles. That's it. No more. Um, And so that's why, of course, you delay baptism till you're about to die. Um, It's misunderstood sin, hasn't it? As a very external thing, just about my behaviour, not about the direction of my heart. It's totally misunderstood the Lord's graciousness. It's just hopeless theology, isn't it? Let me pile on. Um, (coughs) He sees angelic builders removing some stones from the tower. These are believers who've sinned twice. Or there are some, or maybe sometimes three times, and there are other round stones and angels are chopping them. These apparently are rich believers who cannot be inserted into the Tower of Salvation until they've had their riches chopped off. Mm-hmm. Then come a number of commandments. Let me read you one of them. <clears throat> now here about faith. Ooh, okay, let's hear about faith. There are two angels with a person. Mm-hmm. An angel of righteousness and an angel of wickedness. This explains the things about faith. In order that you may trust the works of the angel of righteousness and that by doing them you may live to God. But believe the works of the angel of wickedness are dangerous. By not doing them you will live to God. So you've got got two angels on each shoulder. Or an angel on each shoulder, yeah? Do good, do bad, and you follow the good angel and you will live to God. I mean, that is a appalling theology, isn't it? We're going to introduce you to Pelagius later, but this is Pelagius all over, yeah. Just to show you, can you see Arabia here, right? Now, everything, is this, I'm colourblind, is this orange in the middle? Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's the Roman Empire. Now, what happens is increasingly, once the Roman Empire is Christian, If you're a heretic, you have to leave the empire. Right? So if you believe that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, leave the empire. Bye-bye. If you believe all sorts of strange things, leave the empire. And where do you go if you leave the empire? Now, this is the most popular part of the empire. Where do you go? Basically, out this way. So Arabia, come the 5th, 6th century, is stuffed filled with Christian heretics. Some of them are Gnostics who are saying things like, Jesus didn't really die. Judas took his place and his face was made to look like Jesus because Jesus being righteous could not die. And that just gets incorporated straight away. So I think you've got a lot of, when you see biblical allusions in the Quran and the Hadith, um, Really, it's picking up Christian heresies, not the Bible direct. Yeah, so there's definitely just direct feeding going on. Um, maybe one more. Okay, I'll, I'll keep going. Okay, um, let, let me read you a little bit more from um, 
old shepherd of Hermas. Um, get this. Keep the Lord's commandments and you'll be pleasing to him. And we'll be enrolled among the number of those who keep his commandments. But if you do anything good beyond God's commandment, you will gain greater glory for yourself. And you will be more honoured in God's sight than you otherwise would have been. So it's like you've kind of got heaven there and then you could do more good than necessary. This is going to be absolutely key in later Catholic theology. We'll probably hit it in May. The works more than you need are called works of supererogation. Basically, the idea is you need, like, let's say you need 100 brownie points to enter heaven. Most of us are never going to do that, let's be honest. So we're going to spend time in purgatory. Um, But there are some goody-goodies who are just so good, they rack up 110 brownie points. So they've got 10 spare. 10 spare brownie points. Now, initially, they're just called works of supererogation. They just get, get more glory in heaven. But it becomes, well, they've got 10 spare points that could be handed around others. Yeah? So, I'll go, please, St. Anne, would you lend me one of your spare brownie points? And that's the doctrine of indulgences. We'll come to that in May. Do you see there's a problem in that theology? I've not called it false teaching, but... mm, Yeah. Now, that was very popular, but I can't leave you on that depressed note. That was very, very popular. There was also superb teaching. I haven't got time to go into a lot of it. We've got superb teaching taking out the Gnostics from guys like Irenaeus, who I've mentioned. Um, Justin Martyr taking out the Judaizers. I'm just going to read you a little bit from a second century letter called The Letter to Diognetus. And this is just the tonic you need after you've read The Shepherd of Hermas. This is basically like reading Luther after you've read The Shepherd of Hermas. Diognetus, um, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. The Letter to Diognetus. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Ready to be cheered by this theology. Okay, you've had Hermas. Now Diognetus. When our unrighteousness was fulfilled, and it was made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment and death were to be expected, God himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The Holy One for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? That's just a different theology, isn't it? Covered our sins, not listen to the angel of righteousness. In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Not justifying by my own efforts, you see. Justified in the Son of God alone. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. That theology is also doing the rounds. Isn't that great? Let's just have it. Any last questions? We've got a couple of minutes before lunch. 
We don't know exactly. It's called Letter Diagnetus. It was written sometime. It could even have possibly have been late first century. It's more likely to have been possibly even around the middle of the second century. We don't quite know. When I say bad teaching here, the reason I, I've not called it false teaching is that a lot of it is outright false teaching, denial of the gospel. But I want to just slightly categorize it away from denials that Jesus has come in, in, in the flesh to say a lot of this legalism is just subtle. So in some works, for instance, it's not that they're outrightly denying anything or teaching something that's so bad. It's just all the way to it. You read a book called The Didache, for instance, which is another very, very popular book in the second century. It doesn't actually say anything that I would say is heretical, but the weight of it is all, there's a lot of stuff for you to do. So do this, do that, do this, do that. And most of you kind of go, okay, maybe, but tell me about Jesus' grace and kindness once, maybe. Why would I do these things? Is it because my heart's been turned to love him? No mention of that. Is it that I'm freely brought? Am I trying to earn my salvation with him? doesn't say. So it's, that's why I've called it bad teaching. It's just not clear. It just smells legalistic. Yeah. I, I, hope, I hope that's clear. If I'm, I, I'm not saying it's worse than the false teaching in many instances, but there's more of a range in there. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalization. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy